You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. You know, one of the things that I enjoy about doing a podcast like this is the opportunity to talk to people that I find interesting. And although they may be from the left or the right, um, I find the conversations fascinating, usually enlightening. And one of those individuals is an acquaintance that I've had for a long, long time. And he's an attorney by the name of Wally Zimalong. Wally Zimalong is by background a labor attorney, but he does a whole bunch of different other types of law, uh, primarily focused around the Constitution or policies. And he's a veteran trial lawyer, and he's got vast trial experience having acted as lead plaintiff or defense counsel in nearly 500 cases in federal and state court, private arbitration, and before government administrative law judges. And he's tried numerous cases to verdict and boasts of an undefeated jury trial record. I had the opportunity to reach out to Wally about a week ago, and we had a conversation earlier. I will tell you, he was on his phone, so we got um, cut off a little bit. But in any case, here's Wally Zimalong. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Wally Zimalong, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. And it has been a long time uh, since we've we've known each other, but we're let's talk about our first recollection, because that was my first recollection, what we were just talking about a second ago, which was around 2010? I want to say it was around 2010 when I ran an operation which uh, led to an uh, inspector general investigation into Dennis Walsh. And Dennis Walsh was the Region 4 director of the National Labor Relations Board. Region 4 is um, is located in Philadelphia. Right, and what that investigation uncovered, uh, and and what led to what led to it was that uh, the labor board director, uh, Mr. Walsh, was soliciting donations from organized labor to a nonprofit that he chaired. So he's asking for donations, he's asking for funding to a nonprofit from labor organizations to a nonprofit organization that he chaired. And ostensibly, he's supposed to be a neutral arbiter of union and, and employer claims before him. And that clearly tainted his neutrality. But to make matters worse, it wasn't just you know a nonprofit in the general sense. They weren't raising money to give kids with cancer or something. It was an activist organization that trained uh, folks in labor organizing, trained uh, folks uh, in, in, in how to combat capitalism, and also held seminars on how to elect progressive candidates and conduct quote, Republican governors. It was quite remarkable. Um, in fact, uh, it, it made it all the way, I, I think, to Senator Grassley's task. He was furious. He wanted to hold a, a Senate investigation into it. We had to settle for an inspector general investigation. It ultimately led to his suspension. I think he was suspended without pay for at least three months. Quite frankly, I think he should have been prosecuted because he in the course of the investigation, the inspector general uh, report made quite clear he lied to federal agents. And Peter, you and I know that if his political propensities were different, what would have happened to him? He would have been uh, certainly spent time, at least some nominal amount of time in federal jail. But as it was, uh, it just it led to his, his uh, uh, suspension. Um, I know you were a part of that effort. Um, in, in pointing, uh, I, I think I just the published right what directions. you had put out. I, I think I posted that on uh, Liber Uni Report or Red State. Maybe that's time. all it was, but but I, I you know I think getting the word out was was integral, and it really it really uh, it led to a good result, um, and it really I think shed some light on um, you know whether or not the the National Labor Relations Board is truly a neutral arbiter of labor disputes. And whether they they are sort of an activist wing of the the federal government that that favors labor and and furthers the interest of labor 
rather than um, adjudicating uh, labor policy even-handedly. So, Wally, let's let's back up for a minute and tell the listeners you're an attorney. You practice in a whole bunch of different areas. Um, describe your practice and a little bit of background. Well, my practice now is probably 60 to 70% what I would call policy-related. And that's, that, that really is an outgrowth um, from my, my traditional roots, which are in the construction industry and in, in what I like to call construction labor law. Um, I, I started off you know, litigating you know, sort of general uh, contractual disputes amongst contractors. And from there, you know, I, I became versed in, in the labor uh, relations that these contractors have, both union and non-union. And I was asked to assist them in navigating um, those various disputes, um, and I and I achieved some some nice results. And and that um, that sort of piqued my interest on the underlying policy of it all. You know, as I as I alluded to, you know, it's got me started to thinking. You know, what? How does the National Labor Relations Board operate? What what are its constitutional underpinnings? You know, is what they're doing. Uh, permitted by uh, the National Labor Relations Act was it the intent of Congress for this to become this leviathan that it's that it's been uh, it has become uh, over the last almost 100 years since it was created um, on, under the Wagner Act, and that sort of led to just sort of a general policy um, world. So I, I I've had uh, some really nice results in in uh, in labor litigation, and then that. That sort of bootstrapped its way into some more general policy results, um, arguing you know the constitutionality of various statutes, um, various constitutional provisions, uh, and I do that. I I, I like to consider. Uh, I, I think my politics. I, I don't really make a secret of it. I I, I sort of um, make no bones about it. Uh, I, I am a dedicated conservative. I'm a movement conservative, and I like to think of myself as, as sort of the go-to lawyer for conservative and conservative causes. And as you can imagine, um, some of that, there's an overlap between my position on the, the constitutionality and the legality generally of the National Labor Relations Board and, you know, my antagonism somewhat towards organized labor, although so, some of that's changing a little bit with the way, um, you know, the political atmosphere is changing, what used to be traditionally you know, I, I think public sector unions are, you know, certainly traditionally have been and continue to be, their members continue to be quite progressive and promote progressive causes, although, um, you know, in the construction industry where, where you and I operate heavily, um, the construction industry unions, at least at the rank and file level, I'm not, I'm not so sure uh, they share the progressive uh, worldview that their public sector brothers and sisters do. So that's where I am now. Um, you know, litigating these, these, these policy issues. I still do a lot of labor relations. I still negotiate collective bargain agreements. I, I, I still um, defend against grievances and, 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 and bring and defend against unfair labor practices. But that, that has, uh, you know, led to a pretty robust, you know, like I said, conservative public policy and uh, constitutional practice as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm seeing you everywhere, like, you know, yeah. news media, you know, and it's not just labor stuff, although there's there's a fair amount of that. But you're yeah. involved with a whole bunch of different things these days. Well, you know, um, woke culture uh, has been good to us because um, there's a lot of folks that don't want to take up conservative causes and don't want to represent um conservative interest groups or, or conservative political candidates because uh, they've become toxic. They've certainly become toxic to um, what I would call the AMLAW 100 firms, the top 100 firms in the country. And that's created uh, a tremendous amount of opportunity for folks like me uh, that aren't afraid of this type of stuff, uh, that you know have a little bit of a pugnacious bent to begin with, uh, you know, we, we're, we're happy. We're happy to fill that void. So it's creating opportunities that maybe didn't exist uh, five or 10 years ago. So why I, 
I, I lament our, our, our woke cancel culture. I do have to begrudgingly admit that uh, from, a, from a legal perspective, from a law practice perspective, it's been a bit of a boon. You've, you've developed a niche market. Yes, or they've developed a niche market for us, depending on whose perspective you have. Right. So, well, and I kind of asked you those questions because we started out talking about the National Labor Relations Board, and, um, and you're obviously keeping up with what the NLRB is doing these days. The question I have for you, so you and I probably first acquainted about 10, 12 years ago, um, and you've been following what's happening with the NLRB and you mentioned the regional director of Region 4, which is Dennis Walsh. And the I'm kind of tying all of this together because um, there's, there's a new regional director out of Region 13, which is Chicago, that's another union-side attorney. Walsh was a union-side attorney as well. I think he came from the UAW, if I recall. Um, but she's, she's actually a private practice attorney. And I asked this question of a guest, I don't know, a few weeks ago. And... It's interesting in that she's a private practice attorney going straight to regional director of the National Labor Relations Board, signing off on cases, which I would imagine have to do with a lot of her clients. And I'm curious as to where the ethical boundaries lie with a, quote, neutral agency. And well, that was our. Yeah, th- that raises some interesting issues. Uh, you know, as a as a lawyer that that is licensed in a particular state, you're always going to be bound by the rules of ethics. So, so I don't uh, pretend to be familiar with the rules of ethics in in Illinois and for the Illinois bar, but they're all generally the same. And um, the there is there is a conflict of interest rule that, ap- that applies to former clients. So to the extent she is now in public service, and these are her former clients, former clients, and they're appearing before her, there may be an issue under the the state bar rules of ethics that she needs to to consider. But beyond that, uh, Peter, again, it goes back to uh, this is supposed to be you know a neutral body. Um, and the National Labor Relations Board, it's got a tremendous amount of power. It, 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 it sort of wears three hats. You know, it's the, it's the judge, jury, and executioner in some regards. And it's really unique in that regard. I mean, you, you go to the board uh, with a complaint, and you, you want them to adjudicate your complaint, whether it's a, it's a complaint uh, by labor or a complaint by, um, by management. And you want them to look at that with a neutral eye and determine, should we pursue this into a, a, a formal charge that's adjudicated um, to determine whether or not there's been an unfair labor practice? And if necessary, you know, to have some, some sort of uh, restitution action uh, instituted. And what's, what's interesting is you, you, you have the person that's investigating it. And then you have the person that decides what I like to say is prosecute the charge. You know, that's not terribly unusual. If you had a law enforcement uh, prosecutor, you go, you complain, you say, I think a crime's been committed against me. Law enforcement will investigate it. The prosecutor will decide to, 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 uh, to, to, to pursue the charge. But what's unusual about the National Labor Relations Board is that the judge doesn't work for the prosecutor's office. The judges at the National Labor Relations Board work for the National Labor Relations Board. They're National Labor Relations Board employees. So that's remarkable. Often unionized. And if you're often unionized. Then if you're unhappy with that judge's decision, you, have, you do have the right to appeal. But you have the right to appeal to the National Labor Relations Board. So it's like saying you were charged with a crime cr- criminally. And the judge works for the prosecutor's office. And if you're unhappy with the guilty uh, verdict that the judge has handed down, you can appeal it, but you're going to appeal it to five members of the prosecutor's office. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. I can think of no other agency that operates in this way. In some regards, there's some similarity with the Securities and Exchange Commission, but but not much. And it's remarkable. You you have a, a, a board. That that wields a tremendous amount of power over almost every aspect of of 
commerce falls with under under the purview of the National Labor Relations Board because it relates interstate commerce. That's in, it's been interpreted incredibly broad by the Supreme Court. And to make matters worse, they sort of have this contemptuous perspective on Article Three courts. They're courts that are established by the United States Constitution. The National Labor Relations Board has no constitutional underpinning. It's created by Congress. They sort of have this contemptuous perspective. And what I mean by that is they take the position they are not bound by any federal district court uh, decision or any um, court of appeals decision. They sort of begrudgingly admit that they're bound by Supreme Court decisions, but even to get them to admit that is, is pulling teeth. I've had this issue uh, brought before a federal judge, and you know, there's a provision in the National Labor Relations uh, Act that says you're not really entitled to any discovery, but you know, if you want subpoenas issued to defend yourself, the, the labor board has to do it. And so I did that. I asked for subpoenas to be issued in a case, and the labor board just didn't issue subpoenas. They refused to issue subpoenas to permit my client to prepare defense to these charges. So we brought it before a federal judge, and the federal judge was sort of flabbergasted that the National Labor Relations Board uh, would proceed in this fashion. Uh, in, in direct contravention of the National Labor Relations Act, and he sort of chastised them quite uh, harshly and, and ultimately required them to, to issue the subpoenas. But it just goes to show, it's just this remarkable, remarkable need for neutrality given the, given the, the, the control over uh, almost every aspect of interstate commerce and you know, the remarkable structure of the board itself uh, acting as judge, jury, and executioner. So there's an issue that um, this actually, I believe, is a Supreme Court case that came down on the EPA uh, is within the last few weeks. And I saw an article recently within the last few days of whether that case would apply to potentially stripping out some of the powers of the NLRB and other agencies. Are you familiar with that at all? Oh, yes, I'm, I'm certainly it's the EPA versus West Virginia case, which is for a very long time, at least since most of these agents, now the EPA is not one of them, but many of these alphabet agencies since the New Deal, there's been a tremendous amount of deference and, and, and many legal scholars have been critical to the deference that federal courts have given to these agencies uh, and have deferred to the rulings of these agencies rather than taking an independent view on whether Regulations issued by these agencies, um, you know, is grounded in, in, in statute. Now, you know, what's interesting is the National Labor Relations Board, although they can do it, doesn't tend to issue regulations, um, frequently issue regulations per se. They do it. Um, the, most, the, the, the most contested one I, I can think of what related to by regulation, uh, changing um, the way um, union elections were conducted and, and, and how objections could be raised. And I think that was towards the end of the Obama administration, if I could recall. And that was done through the normal regulatory process where they published. Breaking asked. up on me. I, I, I think it's the connection where we are. So, but, the, but more often than not, the labor board acts um, either through decisions that are, that are issued by the National Labor Relations Board that come forward, uh, before them on an appeal. And, and also they act by sort of policy guidance that's issued by the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board who will put out policy guidance to these various regional directors and say, huh, you know what? This is my perspective on this existing case. I want it overturned, and here's how I want you to do it. And um, so, so the, the, the full impact of that West, West Virginia case is, um, I guess, it's a little muted, I think, as it relates to the Labor Board because of their, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And it comes out of the Fifth Circuit. And in that case, and this could have tremendous ramifications for the Labor Board, uh, in that case, 
the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that federal courts have concurrent jurisdiction with the Securities and Exchange Commission regarding violations of the Securities and Exchange Act. Now, if the, the Supreme Court affirms, and I think the Supreme Court has, has agreed, they, they've granted certiorari on it, so they're going to hear the case. If the Supreme Court hears that case and determines to affirm the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, that will have huge ramifications for cases that are brought before the Labor Board because that would mean that if you're, uh, if, if you're a defendant, so to speak, or a respondent, so to speak, in an unfair labor practice charge, you should be able to take that case and say, you know what, I don't, I don't trust this process. I don't think this is a neutral process before the Labor Board. I'm going to I want, to, I want to take my chances before an Article III federal judge. You should be able to remove that case to federal court. Uh, so that would be, and that, that case is scheduled to be, turn, uh, to be heard in the next term, and we, would, we could have a decision before next June sometime. And if that were to go uh, the way I think it's going to go, uh, you know, it would all, all, I think, but lend a, a death blow to the National Labor Relations Board. There, there could be people that agree to the jurisdiction and have their claims adjudicated there, but you know, I think that would uh, create a, 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 a major, major issue for the viability of it going forward. Okay, so let me back you up for a second because you it, you're lost connection for a second. So you don't think the West Virginia case has that much of an impact on the NLRB, but there's a case before the Fifth Circuit involving the SEC that does? Yeah, the, the, the case has already been heard by the Fifth Circuit. So the, the, okay. the, the, it's called the Cochran case, and the Fifth Circuit's already heard and issued an opinion on it. They issued an opinion um, sort of at the end of the year, the end of uh, 2021. And um, they said that federal courts have at least concurrent jurisdiction with the SEC um, to hear cases in which somebody is alleged to have violated by the SEC, is alleged to have, have, uh, have violated the Securities and Exchange Act. The Securities and Exchange Commission appealed that decision to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case. And the Supreme Court doesn't have to hear every case. It, has to, it selects what cases it wants to hear. This one it's agreed to hear. And, you know, if there's, there, there's, there is some consistency amongst at least six of the judges, is there's, there is a tremendous amount of animosity towards what's called the administrative state. And that's why you're getting decisions like the EPA decision. You know, if the, if the court continues with its anti-administrative state bent, you could certainly see, that it, see it affirming that Cochrane decision. Now, the Cochrane decision doesn't involve the Labor Board, but you could easily take that Cochrane decision, if affirmed by the Supreme Court, and say... If I have the right to have an Article III judge, which is a federal court judge that's appointed by the president and approved by Congress, I'm sorry, appointed, uh, appointed by the president and approved by Congress or the Senate, it, 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 if you can have an Article III judge hear that case under the Securities and Exchange Act, you certainly are going to have the right to hear a case under the National Labor Relations Board. There's, there's an argument to be made that the, the, um, if the Supreme Court affirms the Cochran decision, there's certainly, although it doesn't involve the National Labor Relations Board per se, there's clearly an argument to be made that it applies. And, you know, I, I, I don't see how the, any, any court could distinguish it to. And there's already cases that are, that are underway concerning, you know, the, seeking to bring a case. Uh, you know, I, I know I'm talking to some folks now seeking to bring a case that advances the same arguments that are currently before the court in the Cochran case. But specifically, uh, we'd like to bring them uh, as it relates to the National Labor Relations uh, Board and the National Labor Relations Act. So that somebody that's facing an unfair labor practice charge can have their charge, if they choose, adjudicated by the National Labor Relations Board, or if they choose, can take that charge and have it heard by a federal judge. Interesting. So was the SEC written, or the, the statute... I guess the other question would be, is there a statute um, with regard to the SEC? Is, was that set up yeah, by the an SEC, act of Congress? It was. I mean, the Securities and Exchange Act, I, it, the major portions of it were 33 and 34. 
And the Labor Act was 35. 35. Yeah. That, that's 35. So these are all these New Deal acts where they, they had, you know, these, they created all these alphabet agencies that in which, um, you know, Congress really ceded uh, a tremendous amount of power to them. And they've, you know, for almost 100 years now have, have, have sort of legislated amongst themselves. I mean, it, it's remarkable. I mean, mo- most most federal law is really regulatory. It's, it, it's written by a bunch of bureaucrats. It doesn't get debated in Congress at all. Congress sort of has, and this has happened with both Congresses. They sort of pass some vague legislation and then allow, you know, ask these uh, agencies to fill in the blanks without ever doing the heavy lifting. So I guess what I'm, what I'm getting to is under the NLRA, the NLRB was specifically set up as a neutral, or I shouldn't say neutral, independent agency to adjudicate and decide on labor board cases. Was that, and that was written into the statute. Was the, and I'm not familiar with SEC law at all, so that's why I'm asking: is is that similar? Yeah, I'm trying to see where the blend is. Yeah, it's 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 the same thing. Is that is that if the SEC um, determines that somebody has, has committed a violation of the Securities and Exchange Act, they can bring charges. They're heard just like the NLR, NLRA. They're heard by what's called an administrative law judge who's an employee of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Ah. Yeah, so it, it, they're, there's, they, they parallel each other in some ways, um, uh, the two. So there's, there's a similar structure where it's sort of this internal uh, charging complaint and adjudication procedure, which is very unusual, you know, very unusual. As I said to you um, a couple of minutes ago, it, it, it's usually, okay, if, uh, if somebody says or some government entity feels you violated the law, they can, you know, certainly investigate and bring a charge. But then, you know, there's a whole different body, the judiciary, that, that hears that, that case and determines whether you're guilty or innocent. Not so with... Uh, with the NLRB and the SEC. Interesting. So that that would come out maybe next summer, right? Yeah, I, you know, you you would think it's a pretty big case. You know, they may hold it for one of their June decisions, as they're apt to to, to do. Uh, but it certainly could certainly could happen sooner. Interesting. So, um, where do you where do you see things going right now? Like. Are, obviously, you're keeping up with the Amazons and Starbucks, the world, and and all that sort of stuff. Are you finding it as fascinating yeah, gl- as I do? I, I find it fascinating. So I I, I also uh, and the reason why I I, I find um, I think particularly the Starbucks unionization so fascinating because what we have here is sort of a controlled experiment on. Um, you know whether whether unionization is is, is good or bad, um, and, and as you know, Peter, when you when you do these seminars uh, and you speak to employees about um, unionization, uh, you know what one of the things you, you point out is look, you know some things you look at. You're not you're not guaranteed anything if you vote you you, you vote to go union. You're you're guaranteed the right to bargain. You're not guaranteed a positive outcome. You're not guaranteed a negative outcome. But you know, all it is is you get you become unionized and you have to bargain, and and then we add on top of that, look, you're you're uh, there's no real choice often for individual investment. You know, you're you're sort of lockstep with everybody else, depending on what is negotiated for you, and a whole host of things. So what what you have, what's amazing about Starbucks is, is they're 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 organizing these stores on a store by store basis, and you know, at least you know where I am, there's there's like there's a Starbucks store, you know, around, you know, every half mile or so, it seems. So they're organizing these stores. So you, you have store A that, that, that may be located in one location, and they've voted for, for unionization. Okay, fair enough. So that begins the bargaining process. And then, um, but, but the store down the street might be ununionized at that point. And, you know, if I'm the union, you better hope you get a really, really good deal for the employees at the unionized store, because if you if you move on to the next store, the store down the street, the store across town or across the county, and you haven't done that, all Starbucks has to do is look, folks. There's a there's a Starbucks down the street or across town or what have you. Look what happened there. 
This is you're the same exact situation. They haven't gotten anything. They haven't gotten anywhere for for a year, for a year and a half, and their wages and benefits have been frozen. Uh, we haven't been able to do much with them because the Labor Act ties our hands in that regard. And you, you folks have received, uh, you know, better benefits, better raises. We've been able to do uh, a lot more with this store. Do you really want to? Do you really want to do that? So if I'm Starbucks, I'm going all in on the non. And I, and I think they've done this. I, I at least the way I've been following it. Well, the stores that that haven't been hit with these unionization efforts, you want to do everything possible to make sure your employees are really happy there because it becomes very easy for, for Starbucks to, to just make an, make an apples-to-apples apples comparison. There it is. You, you might even know some of the folks you're working, that are working there. You can even ask them this. You know, it's been a year. Are their lives any better? Or um, uh, are, 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 do you feel that your situation here is better than theirs? I, I really can't think of any other um, similar uh, scenario. I mean, even, even, you know, maybe you have something like with the UAW, but there you have, you know, maybe a plant up in Michigan somewhere and the unionization effort might be taking place at some facility down in South Carolina. Um, but with these Starbucks, with the, such the close proximity, and you're talking about people in the same community that can communicate with each other about whether unionization was a good idea or a bad idea. I mean, I'm just sort of sitting back grabbing the popcorn here because, um, you know, both sides have a lot to lose. I mean, for the union uh, that's organizing these stores, I think it's tremendously risky because if they don't deliver, I mean, this whole thing collapses very, very quickly. And they may even start bleeding people because they may just say, look, why, why stay here locked into this agreement where I bargain? I can just go, I can just go work at the Starbucks down the street and go back to the, the, the old way of doing things. I don't have to worry about all this nonsense, uh, strikes and all that. Uh, we don't have to do it. I can just, it's not, not too, tremendous burden to go to work at a different location. Uh, and like I said, you don't, you don't really have that with, with other employers who, who the, the, the distance between the two sites and facilities isn't such that somebody can easily just pick up and go somewhere else. Well, it's interesting because, um, and there hasn't not been a lot of coverage about this. Obviously, the press is a little bit biased, but um, you know, there's they've got union plants in some of these stores. The DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, have taken a very active role in the campaigns. And to your point, with turnover, it's it's highly likely that some of these kids who voted to unionize won't be there in a year. And right. If, if they don't have a contract, what do you have to show for it? Exactly, and and then you have to ask yourself, uh, what what happens? What happens to that store? So you you have a transient workforce, you know, have folks that say, "Enough, I'm just not going to work here anymore after a year, year and a half." And then then you have the the potential person is like, okay, well, you know, I, I have I have two options. I could I could go down the street and apply for a job there. I could go uh, I could go for apply for a job here in the unionized facility. And if, if the unionized facility hasn't gained anything and they cannot show express appreciable benefits over the non-union facility, why would you ever work there? <laughs> How are they going right. to get employees there? I mean, right. they're, they're, they're sort of, uh, you know, fiddling with their own demise in some regards. Again, I, 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 perhaps you can come up with one, but I cannot think of a similar scenario, um, in, in history where you, where you have, so many different company-owned sites that are being organized on a store-by-store basis where this, this sort of um, confluence of all these factors where you have transient workforce being able to go to, a, to another facility quite easily. Um, I can't think of one. Uh, perhaps you can. No. I, and, you know, it's interesting also because, um, you know, 10, 10, 12 years ago, the big push was to unionize. And of course, the Starbucks union is SEIU, right? So they were going after the whole franchise system, McDonald's, you know, and some of the others, Burger King, et cetera, trying to unionize the entire company. And so they've switched their methodology at this point, even now with a friendly labor board, to try to get in the 
you know, store by store, single bargaining unit thing. I did it. I did an interview with um, Stephen Greenhouse, former New York Times reporter. He did kind of um, signal, if you will, kind of maybe the strategy is to get a massive stores and then go for a single bargaining uh, agreement. You know, single contract, maybe sure. with differences in different geographic regions. So that may be the play, but it's been very interesting to watch. Yeah, it might be the play. I, 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 it sort of raises issues of legality, you know, uh, as you know, as we get into what's the proper bargaining unit, can you just sort of glom a bunch of people together under the National Labor Relations Act that are spread out and geographically in different states? I mean, I, I don't think you can. That's my initial reaction on that. I'm not, I'm not aware uh, I'm not aware of that uh, happening anywhere else. I mean, again, you know, even even some of these uh, uh, employers that have multiple sites all over the country. I mean, each, each one of those facilities has a different bargaining union and is different um, have different collective bargaining agreements. No one has one unified agreement. You know, I think the the, the closest one I can think of are really is sort of like the, the UAW. Uh, but you know, all those are done on a facility facility basis. I think there's some statutory underpinning for that under the National Labor Relations Act. Well, it needs to be done that way. So that, that might be their strategy, whether or not that, that, that has any legal merit uh, is, is another story. Well, it's, it's certainly fascinating to watch because there are, I think, 200-plus stores that have voted to unionize. They had a, a strike with a bunch of stores. Um, this goes to another legal issue, that a bunch of stores went out on strike because the unionized stores are being left out of the pay increases that Starbucks is doing, according to the press. Well, well, that, that goes to my point is that, is that these, these unionized stores, um, you know, some of that is, is by operation of laws that, um, you know, the, the, the employer needs to be very careful about what they do during a unionization effort. Because if, if you do, um, you know, uh, try to increase wages and benefits in some, in certain ways, you might, you know, be violating the labor act and you might be facing an unfair labor practice charge. They, the, the, the Starbucks or any other employer doesn't have to worry about that. If you work for, and that's one of the selling points. Again, we, when you and I talk to uh, employees, you know, one of the, one of the pros of remaining a a marriage shop or an open shop facility is, you know, the employer is free to do um, what they wish. They're not, they're not beholden to anybody. They can, they can change benefits. If you're unhappy, they can do it without doing a lengthy bureaucratic bargaining session. Um, and, and that's what Starbucks is doing. And, and I think they're smart to do it because, um, maybe they're, they're, they're adopting the strategy that if I was representing Starbucks, I would say to do is to do just that. Cause then you could point to, uh, it to the, so when the union organizer comes to that store where there's been pay increases or better benefits, things like that, you, you, you can say, well, why are you going to organize here? Are your benefits now, and here's the comparison, um, of, of the benefits down the street. I mean, I, I could envision, you know, guys like you and I having a PowerPoint <laughs> put up there and say, look, here's the store. You may even know some of the employees that work there. Here's what they're currently getting. Here's what you're getting. What, what are we missing? Why would you, why would you want to get that? That's a, that's a worse deal. It becomes a pretty easy pitch for management. Right. Yeah. It's, it, again, as you stressed, as long as it's done lawfully, there's, yeah, as long as, yeah. there's a, uh, there's a Bloomberg article from um, just this week that basically they did an analysis on wage increases from 2021 to 2022. And the union wage increases were 3.4%, non-union was 6%. So it's about a 76% difference. And you should see all the comments I'm getting on LinkedIn since posting that article from the union folks saying, well, there's, you know, there's this and that and, and, you know, all these excuses, basically, but it's, it's just fascinating how much they'll, um, I guess, make excuses for it. It's just it's fascinating. Well, and th- I wasn't aware of that, um, but that is, that's a fascinating statistic. You, you might have to put that one, uh, you might have to put that one in, um, in, in, in the presentation binder uh, to employees because, um it shows that one of the reasons why that is is because often the rate of pay increase is dictated by the collective bargaining agreement. So like, you're bound by that. And you know, look, there, there are certainly collective bargaining agreements that, um, that hinge uh, wage increases to the rate of inflation. 
Um, you know, a, lar- a large part of wage increases now is is inflation related. So as inflation um, uh, has befallen us, not non non union employers don't have any restrictions. They can they can raise wages to, to meet inflationary pressures um, any way they, they they desire. That's not necessarily the case for a unionized employer. They have to look to the terms and conditions of their collective bargaining agreement. They can't just decide unilaterally. Look, we're going to raise wages to meet the rate of inflation. If the collective bargaining agreement says uh, you know, look, you only get 3% a year, you only get 3% a year. And you're stuck with it. You're stuck so, with it. So let's stay on that for a second, because that was one of my responses, not quite that adroit, but that was one of my responses to one of the comments on LinkedIn, because a lot of people, even union folks, people on the streets don't understand that in the middle of a collective bargaining agreement, you cannot raise wages just because inflation goes up. You have to wait till the contract expiration. And if you do a wage reopener, even with the union's concurrence, that kind of sometimes will open up the entire contract. So in some respects, both parties don't want to do that. And then from a non-union standpoint, you're able to move as the economy moves, which I think is a big explanation as to why there's differences in this last year. I, I would say that that explains almost all of it. Um, you know, when you told me that statistic, it, it probably it didn't strike me n- knowing what you just described. It didn't strike me as terribly surprising because of because of the burdens that are placed on in, in, uh, unionized employers and uh, and restrictions. Uh, and and those don't exist in, with with the non non union employer. Um, you know, it is it. We haven't had that, you know. We frankly, that 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 has not been that relief between the the uh, relate the different wage increases hasn't been pro- so profound because inflation has been so low you know, for the past twenty years. Uh, but now, when we're we're in a a, a period of uh, hyperinflation, um, you know, I, I, you could certainly see that continuing at least until, less than until some of these collective bargaining agreements start to roll over. Yeah. It, but it's, you know, when you're talking to people, whether it's employees, company owners, people just not familiar with the process, they they don't connect the dots to that. Yeah. And union you know, people, <laughs> they don't get it either. No. And 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 I think the, the public and, and particularly employees, I, I, I think it also ties back to one of the biggest myths of unionization is that a, a vote to become a member of a union uh, is, is like waving a magic wand and all, the next day, you know, you have better working conditions and, and, and wages. And, and that's something that I, I, I repeatedly stress. Now, it just means that uh, the employer has a duty to bargain over your wages and, and benefits. And that may, like I said, that may result in better or it might, might be worse. It might be totally neutral. But nothing guaranteed. You're not guaranteed anything by voting um, to become a member uh, of a union. Uh, and, and like I said, it, sometimes it does result in a better result. Sometimes it results in a neutral result. And sometimes, in some respects, it might be worse. And you know, it could. There's no. There's, as long as the employer and the union are negotiating in good faith, there's no window by which this uh, agreement must be entered into it could you know you you know there's examples out there where these bargaining sessions go in um uh, go for years uh and you know these are these are cases i've written about it's like well you know hindsight being 2020 when anybody that voted to unionize to be stuck in negotiations for two years would anyone actually go for that that's a possibility as long as there's good faith negotiating so here's here's the stat that came out today via Bloomberg. Um, the average length that it takes, or the mean length, number of days it takes newly unionized employers and their newly unionized workers to ratify a first contract has grown to 465 days. Oh, wow! I, that that surprises me. I, I 465 days. I mean, that's that's a that's 18 months. That's a year and a half. I mean, who? Yeah, I don't know why you would. Well, that last year it was only 409 days, so it's taking longer, and and they've got a breakdown from um, different industries take longer than others. Healthcare is the longest as of last year is 528 days. So, it's uh, yeah. To your point, people oftentimes think it's wave a magic wand, vote the union, and on Friday, Monday, I'm going to have new terms, yeah. and conditions of employment. Yeah, and it's only yeah, going to no, get that... better. 
Yeah, it's only going to get better. And then, you know, you have that, you know, uh, what can be done in the interim? I mean, I, I certainly want to want to uh, accept a job where um, you know, I was not going to have any real chance for advancement for at least 18 months. I mean, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a remarkable statistic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, every now and then you find these out on Bloomberg or BN, uh, BNA is Bloomberg, you know, the employment law journals and stuff like that. And yeah. It's fascinating because, you know, a lot of people don't pay attention to that. But, you know, when they when they complain about, you know, after voting to unionize that I haven't gotten anything for a year or two years or. Well, that's why, you know, you're remaking your employment relationship, whether you like it or not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, That's another one to, to, to put in the playbook um, uh, to, to, to educate folks. Uh, you know, it's certainly not something you're going to see in the media. I mean, I think the media just assumes that. You know, unionization, like you said, you go for it on Friday and Monday. It's it's Shangri-La, the place of employment, and uh, but but that's clearly not the case. And uh, so I think it's 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 something that's that's uh, misunderstood by by employees, and I really really at the public as large as well. Yeah. So what else you've been up to? <laughs> I... Well. As you can see, I've kept myself very busy. I don't, I don't necessarily, um, you know, uh, for, for for much else, but but keeping my clients out of trouble with unions and 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 uh, um, uh, from becoming unionized, keeping my clients uh, out of trouble for those that are that are that are uni- uh, already unionized. But then just you know, really just busy with the the, the policy stuff. You know, it's it's sort of like. Um, you know, we never we never left off uh, after the, the 2020 election. It's only uh, it's only ramped up from there. Um, seems like every day there's there's something that comes out at either the federal, uh, state, or local level that's susceptible to some constitutional attack. That's a that's a government overreach uh, that impinges on, on on some right or another. And and I know we're we're all too happy to. to Take up those causes on behalf of clients. Sometimes that's that that finds itself in the in the labor world, and sometimes it finds itself in the in the in the world at large. Well, I saw I saw something. You seem to be angering the teachers' unions or doing something <sighs> with the the teachers. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, um, that's a great example. Um, it's a great story of how how my background in labor. Um, really uh, led me to develop a, a, a tremendous relationship with an with an absolutely uh, brilliant lawyer um, named Jonathan Mitchell, who who was uh, a former solicitor general of Texas. He was a, a former clerk for for Justice Scalia, and and Jonathan and I became acquainted because uh, uh, back in 2018. Uh, he, he had uh, was leading up an effort to, to file class actions in various states in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision in Janus. Uh, and the, the, the thrust of, of this uh, effort um, was to seek um, recoupment of union dues paid by uh, non-union members who had, who had objected uh, to becoming a member of the union that, but were still required to pay what are known as agency fees uh, to the unions, which were constitutional uh, 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 under the uh, existing law. But that changed in, in June of 2018 when uh, the Supreme Court said that uh, public sector employees, and that would include teachers' unions, uh, could, uh, could not uh, compel uh, payment of union dues uh, for non-members and people that objected to paying dues. And um, he was led to me because my my understanding of the National Labor Relations Act and and really my my experience in in uh, trial courts and district courts, he, him being an appellate litigator and someone that's practiced in circuit courts and before the United States Supreme Court. So that that sort of uh, we we had uh, I, I think you know, close to three or four cases, um, class action cases together related to public sector unionization. Uh, and whether or not uh, uh, the dues had to be repaid. Uh, my cases were in Third Circuit. Unfortunately, the Third Circuit said that they did not, although there's some efforts by some other people uh, to get that uh, clarified by the United States Supreme Court. So hopefully that gets clarified soon. Uh, but then, you know, that from, from there, um, you know, that, that sort of led me to become 
sort of a bullseye for the teachers unions. Um, I was engaged by uh, um, a group at, at the University of Pennsylvania, a group of students to represent them. Uh, I did so pro bono. Uh, they uh, were opposed to the unionization of grad students. And I believe it was a, a wing of uh, the National Federation for Teachers that was trying to organize these grad students. And when I got involved and my, my involvement was disclosed, the teachers union sent out a, a blast email to all the graduate students at the University of Pennsylvania. And they said, a destructive force has entered our community. <laughs> and I, I think they meant it to deride me, but I, I sort of wore, wore that with a badge of honor. I sort of incorporated that as a lot. Sounds pretty good if they are that concerned about me. So yeah, that 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 they I found myself in the in the crosshairs uh, uh, with the teachers unions there, um, you know, and I've I've, I've continued to be a, a thorn in their side uh, one way or another uh, 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 since that time period. But uh, no active litigation against the teachers unions uh, right now, but. Uh, uh, but they're, 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 they're a worthy adversary frequently. And, and very political. Yeah, very political. Um, you know, they're, they're, it's amazing. They're a, um, their political donations are funded exclusively by taxpayers. And I, again, I, it's another one of these unique things. I can't think of another industry or union that has their, uh, political, uh, donations funded by Taxpayers, many of whom disagree with their political opinions, and what I mean by that is that the teachers' unions—they're paid with tax dollars. They're paid by uh, your 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 the school taxes that everybody pays. Uh, every property owner pays school taxes that goes to fund the schools, and that pays the teachers. And then the teachers take part of their wages and 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 divert them to political action committees that are controlled by the teachers' unions. So they they use. Uh, um, School district taxes, school taxes, property taxes. Uh, the government collects that. It, it uses this, that money to pay the salaries of the teachers' unions. And teachers' unions then to then say in the collective bargaining agreement that a certain portion of the salary will be diverted to the political action committee. And then these committal political action committees that have a tremendous amount of money go out and organize and advocate for political positions. Um, many of which taxpayers disagree with. I mean, it's like saying that you're forced to give money to the Democratic Party if you're a conservative and, and allow them to uh, go use that money to advocate um, uh, for, the, for the election of their candidates and, and, and for the unelection of your, your, your candidate, and then also for different uh, you know, social causes that, that, that you don't uh, agree with. And, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why, you know, the case like Janice and, and, and some of the class actions that we, we brought were so important was, you know, there's a real First Amendment issue there. It's like I, I know what my tax dollars are going to, to, to fund causes that I don't agree with. Um, why, why should the government compel that? Um, so that there, there were very important cases, uh, very profound cases. But these teachers unions, they just have a tremendous amount of power over, over – uh, not only our, our general political life, but, but just the lives of our children. And you're seeing it now. I mean, if any, any question about what these folks were up to, uh, that was resolved, I think, you know, uh, one of the silver linings, I guess, to the, the whole Zoom education thing was learning what these teachers were saying to our kids in, 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 in schools. And they really woke parents up. So define that a little bit more. I think I know the direction you're going. Um, we're seeing a lot of backlash. Loudoun County, Virginia, I think, um, is one of the loudest in terms of, uh, I think they overturned their school board, but a lot of the stuff that was being taught in the schools in Loudoun County became more public. And they, uh, there's from, I think, CRT to some of the other stuff. Florida, of course, has been in the news a lot. Yeah, well, I, it, it's a shame. I mean, it, 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 the... Public, public school teachers. My father was a public school teacher, and I and I and I remember him and his friends. I I I don't, I don't really know what their their politics was, but I can tell you they the last thing on their mind was was politics. They were there to educate the kids and 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 be public servants. But it, that's sort of educating kids on 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 sort of reading writing and arithmetic 
has taken a back seat to to progressive wokeism. I mean, the teachers unions have become extremely political, and you know, and, and at any turn, they don't hesitate to try to indoctrinate children, whether it be CRT or gender uh, studies and, and, and stuff that might be appropriate for for more mature children. You know, uh, uh, juniors, seniors in high schools that can that have the, the maturity and the, the intellectual capability to discern what the teachers are saying, but they want to force it on children in, in kindergarten, first grade. You know, they're just trying to find their way around. It's, it's really, in, in my opinion, it's, it's disgraceful. Um, and, and we, we learned about this uh, because everybody got a chance to see what was going on in the classroom because everything was being taught by zoom and everyone got to see what teachers were saying and how they were instructing students and the, 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 the type of, uh, uh, political ideology that was was shaping all of their lessons, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I was a, a I was one of those parents, and, and I saw it firsthand, and it was it was uh, shocking to me. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I I, I had uh, the highest regard. You know, especially given given my father, I had the highest regard to these these public school teachers, and you know, following uh, what happened uh, with this remote learning. Um, I, I unfortunately, I sadly lost that regard, and it 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 uh, it's it's something that um, you know the teachers unions and the public school teachers have no one to blame but themselves because uh, they're they're the ones that decided to uh, to advance a, a political agenda rather than advancing what matters most, which is which is teaching our children. And I, you know, I, I don't want to throw all, all public school teachers under the bus. I know there's some. Some really tremendous teachers out there, but but uh, uh, but you know the the, the teachers unions uh, they tend to have the ability. The problem is they tend to have the ability to to sort of ferret out those teachers that just yeah you know, maybe they're politically agnostic and they just want to teach. I'm sure there's a lot of teachers like that, and maybe there's some teachers that are opposed to some of the political stuff. But they just they yield such tremendous power uh, that uh, these they'll they'll do. Um, whatever it takes uh, to, to snuff out any form of dissent. You know, it, 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 take, for example, these school closures. I mean, um, it, in, in my school district, uh, the, the school board initially said, look, you know, we're going we're gonna to open for the 2020-2021 school year. And the teachers unions held us an emergency meeting and, and, and uh, voted, their members voted three to one, 75%. They refused to go back to school, so they so they essentially engaged in a de facto wildcat strike because they had no grounds not to go back to school, and you know, they really tied the school board's hands. They, the school board uh, uh, had no choice. So so uh, you know my my kids were out of school for for a year and a half. I mean I I I don't think I'll ever get over that. I think that 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 to me. Um, just showed that you know these uh, these teachers unions are just they're just a disgrace. They're just disgraceful people. Well, you know, I I've wondered where. So you have these issues going on in the classrooms. They're teaching different um, ideologies, so to speak. Like, where did that come from? Like, who came up with the game plan <laughs> that we're going to send all these teachers the same lesson manual, so to speak? And you know, convert our kids into little progressives. Well, it didn't happen overnight. Um, you know, it, 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 this stuff's been going on for years at our colleges and universities. So uh, you, you 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 put enough uh, uh, enough kids go through uh, these uh, schools of higher education. They hear this nonsense. They become uh, brainwashed by it, and you build up enough critical mass. Uh, whereby uh, you sort of flip a whole industry to, to think a certain way. So where it comes from is it has its roots in higher education. I mean, it, it, it's a shame. It used to be, yeah, it was always taught in higher education, but it was sort of limited to certain institutions. You know, you could joke to say that sounds like something that they teach out in Berkeley. Well, it's, now it's something they teach at every college or university. Every single one of them is teaches right. this. So you really right. can't escape it. So if you're if you're somebody a, a uh, a young person that wants to get into education, and you're 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 going to go get your degree in education. It's the type of stuff you're going to be taught for four years, no matter where you go. There's really there's no escaping it. So it's not very little question that uh, 
uh, how it came about. And then they, 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 so these teachers unions sort of have a captive audience as to, okay, now we're going to move on to the, to, to the, um, from the university level, we're going to take this, what we learn, and we're going to teach it, start it off and teach it at the secondary level, at the high school level. And now, remarkably, it's filtered down into the middle and, and elementary school level. So you just, um, you mentioned something a second ago, uh, captive audience, and not to jump topics too much. You're following what the uh, general counsel is doing with the captive audience meetings? I totally just jumped topics on you. Yeah, no, that's a great point. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah, I am. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of, it, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting. It certainly raises some first amendment issues. It's something I've discussed with colleagues to whether or not, uh, uh, this could be, uh, this is something that could be challenged in the federal courts. I mean, to say to an employer that, um, you, 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 can't, um, you know, you can't say, to me, it seems like they're saying, well, you can't really say certain things because you can't require anybody to be here uh, to listen to it. So that it, it certainly has some, has some, uh, uh, you know, strikes me as some free speech aspects of it. I mean, it, it strikes me as, you know, that, 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 that it really beyond sort of the constitutional issues that are raised uh, strikes me as something that uh, you really hamstrung the employer even further because you know the the unions uh, you know have weeks and often months to get their message across, and employers don't have that luxury. Then these captive audience meetings are, are are sometimes the only way that employers can tell their side of the story. And now you have the labor board saying, you know, you, you can't you can't do that. So it's like just from a perspective, forget about the constitutional issues, but just from a perspective of fundamental fairness, um, you know, how do you how does an employer um, tell their employees their position on this entire thing? I mean, it's sort of it's sort of just one more thing that the, the National Labor Relations Board has done to uh, um, tilt, tip the scales in favor of unions. And, and there's a prime example of what I was talking about earlier in the in, in, in the podcast, Peter, is that they that wasn't done by the normal federal regulatory process. Normally, that process is a lengthy process. Like I said, there's a, publication of a proposed rule, there's a chance for people to weigh in, and then that's finally published to become this has the force of law. The, the, the captive audience thing was, you know, that we got a new general counsel, a very progressive, and she just decided that she didn't like it. So now, now she's now she's gonna, you know, put out a field memorandum that 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 says, you know, we think the the rules is wrong and you ought to not allow this anymore. Yeah, I just had uh, a, an attorney by the name of Matt Miller on the podcast who works for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And mm-hmm. they're actually suing the NLRB and GC Abruzzo in the, I think it's the circuit court out in eastern Texas or something like that, district court. And it's it was interesting because they are going after it on First Amendment grounds. Well, I'm glad you told me that. I wasn't aware of that. You know, if I... Frankly, if I uh, if I brought a case, I'd probably bring it in the Eastern District of Texas as well. I'd probably tell you to probably figure out uh, without thinking too hard which judge it's in front of. Uh, that must be relatively new. I haven't read about that, um, but that that's the angle that I've always approached it from. I mean, that's certainly the angle that gets you in federal court, just because you don't think you know an issue of fundamental fairness. Unfortunately, doesn't get you a day in federal court. But that's uh, um, that's something I'm going to have to have to review tonight because I want to see what their, their arguments are. Um, because I think that, I, I think they have a good chance. Yeah. I'll send it to you. It's uh it's an interesting read. The, the case itself is only about 10 pages. The, the entire case is over a hundred because they include the CMEX uh, complaint mm-hmm. in there. But you know, I, it, it must've been recently filed. I don't think early, been. early July or mid July. Yeah. That's probably, <laughs> that's probably why I haven't seen it, but that's uh, well, that's good news. And, and, and I know the, I know the folks, um, that that are behind it, and 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 they're great. And I and I hope uh, I wish them the best of luck. I hope they get a great result. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. He said it may take a while, but um, several months or whenever. So it'll be interesting to watch. I don't know, and I don't think he knew because he doesn't specialize just in labor law. He's more constitutional. But there, I think it was the Eastern District of Texas that did the persuader injunction, right? 
They did. It was the Eastern District of Texas, and the judge's name is escape, escapes me because I we we talked. And the guys mentioned names, but we talked. You know, when we talk about these various issues. Um, there's there's a particular uh, venue out there that's 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 very favorable to these type of cases. Well, yeah, and there's just so much going on. It's hard to keep up with it all. Yeah, yeah, so I, yeah. And usually what happens is I'll see something online and I'll try to get hold of whoever wrote it or whoever's involved in the case. And that's, you know, that's what, that's why I sent you the invite last week. So yeah. you had, you had yeah. something published. I was like, Oh, I need to get Wally Zimmelong on. Oh, well, I'm glad I, I'm glad you saw it. Cause uh, you know, this is, uh, this format has been fantastic. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, it's been about an hour, and I, I know I've got to do some editing on this because the the uh, wonkiness of the internet. But let me uh, let you go, and I appreciate you coming on. And we need to do it again and catch up a little bit more often. We absolutely do, and I will happily come on uh, this podcast again, Peter. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and. I'm so happy you've you've rolled out this podcast. Uh, you, know, you do you do tremendous work. Well, it's and, been uh, it's been a lot of a lot of years since we've chatted. So, and that as we're going back in our memory banks, trying to figure right. out when we when we officially met, and it's it's been at least a decade or more. So. It, it, it has. It's it's amazing. It's it's actually remarkable. It's been that long, but uh, this is a great way to get reacquainted. I I really can't thank you enough. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right. Take care. You too. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Wally Zimlong, labor attorney by day, uh, defender of the Constitution all the time, and all around uh, buckaroo bonsai of attorneys. And that's a compliment, by the way. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm going to leave a lot of links to uh, various articles as well as access to Mr. Zimlong and his law firm, and if you want to reach out to us, reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Have a great day. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.